this morning, Luke chapter 21. We just got finished what uh, was called the Olivet Discourse, uh, looking at that over the last few weeks. Incredible story, a wonderful uh, teaching of Jesus given to us. And you recall that he ended the teaching in verse 36. He said, watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. And I just want to remind you that as we studied all these things that will come to pass, that everything that we see is taking place is, is leading to something somewhere. And that is, it's leading to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And what my hope and prayer for all of us is that we would keep our eyes on him and that we would watch and be sober, that we would be vigilant, that we wouldn't go to sleep spiritually in a day in which we were living in. And to know that as we are watching and waiting, that we're to be working as well. We are to occupy till he comes. We have a unique opportunity in the day in which we're living in this generation this generation being closer to the return of the Lord than any other generation, obviously. But here's the thing. We see the signs. We see the birth pangs, the storm clouds gathering. And you and I have an opportunity to give light and truth to others. So keep your eyes on the Lord. But as we finish that teaching last time, let's go as we finish chapter 21 in verse 37. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night... He went out and stayed on the mountain called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And so Jesus, as we know, that he came into Jerusalem on that Sunday called Palm Sunday, making his triumphal entry. It is the week of Passover. He's in his final days before the cross. And as we continue reading here in chapter 22, we're going to see he's only hours away from the cross. And as he was in Jerusalem for those, that last week of his life, he's been at the temple teaching the people. Luke here is repeating what he wrote at the end of chapter 19, that he was teaching Jesus daily in the temple. We know that as we moved into chapter 20, that it begins by telling us that he was preaching the gospel, that is the good news to the people, who were very attentive to hear him. In other words, they were hanging on to every word that Jesus was saying. What an incredible teaching that must have been to hear our Lord giving there at the temple, preaching the good news. And we know that as Mark's narrative tells us, I like what Mark records, that he says that it was the common people that heard him gladly. So during that time, as we moved into chapter 20, keep in mind that the religious leaders, they have been for some time desiring to, to put away Jesus, to have him be killed, to have him be arrested. Let's move into chapter 22. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread drew near, which is called Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. And so we know that Luke here, he puts together Passover, which would be followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You can read all about that in, in Exodus chapter 12. But as we have seen that here, the religious leaders, they're wanting to come against Jesus, have him be killed. They think that they're losing their authority with the people, and they're trying to figure out how to do that. They feared the people. And you recall that when Jesus was teaching at the temple in chapter 20, that here came the religious elite. They come and they confront Jesus publicly. And they said, by what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? And Jesus would answer them 
They uh, didn't uh, respond to him, but what they're trying to do, as we saw in chapter 20 very clearly, is trying to trap him and trick him and back him into a corner, trying to, to find a reason to have him be arrested. And they thought that perhaps they had done that when they came and asked them about the question of taxes. Hey, is it lawful to pay taxes to Rome or not? And if he answered, yes, it is lawful to pay taxes, you should do that, then they knew that the people who hated paying taxes to Rome and tribute to Caesar, that they would begin to turn away from Jesus, being disappointed in him. And then they don't have to fear the people any longer, and they can get their hands on him, or at least a lot easier. Well, if he said, don't pay taxes to Caesar, then they would go down to the authorities and say, hey, that guy that rode into Jerusalem, you know, the, the other day and caused this big stir and, and, and a stir there at the temple, of course, as he cleansed the temple. Uh, he's now down there at the temple, and he's leading this insurrection against Rome. He's telling people not to pay tribute to, to Rome and to Caesar. And that's something that Rome did not put up with. And that was what they were hoping would happen, because it tells us, Dr. Luke does in the text, that they're hoping that they have a reason to have him be arrested. So as we see that Jesus in chapter 20, they were questioning his authority. They came questioning his integrity about taxes. They were questioning his theology. And so perfectly that Jesus answered them that they dare not ask him any more questions. Matter of fact, we were told once again that the people marveled at the answers of Jesus. And then he would turn to the religious leaders and he would give one last rebuke to them before he would head off for the evening and give what we have been looking at as the teaching of the Olivet Discourse. And so the religious leaders are furious with him. And you got to, to kind of picture this and think about their situation. Their strategy in trying to trap him and trick him and find a reason to accuse him or be arrested and, and to be able to take him, that strategy has not worked. They're fearing the people. They're fearing the people to the point that chapter 20, verse 6 tells us that they're afraid that the people are going to stone them. And, and they don't want that to happen. It was earlier than this that at one point that the religious leaders had sent their temple soldiers to arrest Jesus there in Jerusalem. And they came back without him. And the religious leaders said, why didn't you bring him to us? You know, uh, and it was the, the soldiers that said, never before a man speaks like this man speaks. And I think you'll find the same thing to be true. As you listen to the words of Jesus, as you read the word of God, the way that it speaks to us is unlike anything, of course, of the world and the world's ways and philosophy. Because this is truth that is given to us. And the word of God is alive. And, and allowing the Lord to speak to us is such a unique and wonderful and glorious opportunity that we have every time we open up this Bible. So they're thinking, what are we going to do? You know, um, they're at a loss. How is it that we can put Jesus to death as they're meeting? And then all of a sudden things change. Verse 3. As then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. So he went his way and conferred with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he promised and sought opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So we can picture this, can't we? Here's the council, the religious leaders meeting. They're trying to figure out how can we kill Jesus. They're angry. They, they, they hate him. They're at a boiling point. We want to do this right away. 
They're seeking how it is that they can get at him. They don't know how it is that it's going to be done. They're fearing the people, and then all of a sudden they get a break. There's a knock on the door. Who is it? Judas Iscariot. Who are you? I'm one of the twelve. I got something to say that might be of interest to you. And as he goes and he talks to them, he said, I'll betray my master to you in the absence of the crowds and the multitudes. And verse 5, we see the religious leaders, their, their response. It tells us that they were glad. They're ecstatic. They're thinking, what a break this is. They're rejoicing over this. We're so glad. Can you believe that this is one of the 12, one of the inner circles of Jesus, and he's going to help us to destroy him? That, that Judas is saying, I'll be a part of this process here. And it brought great joy to those religious leaders. And they agreed to pay him money. We know from John chapter 12 that it tells us that Judas was greedy. So as we look at this, I want to draw attention again to verse 6, where here comes Judas. We're told that he promised to betray him. First of all, he sought opportunity to betray him, and he sought to do it in the absence of the multitudes and the crowds here. I know where he goes. I know his routine, where you can get at him. And you can bring a large contingency of, of soldiers to arrest him when the people are, aren't around. Because he goes to a garden not far from here. And he spends time in prayer. And I'll lead you there. And, and we'll be able to, to get him. And you'll be able to take him away. A garden called Gethsemane. And I think that one of the saddest verses in all of the Bibles is found here in verse 3 that where we were told that Satan entered Judas. Now remember earlier in Luke in chapter 4 at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry that the temptation of Jesus was there in the wilderness. And verse 13 of the chapter tells us that when Satan had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. This is the opportune time. And keep in mind, we know that Jesus is in control here. It's not Satan. He knows what Judas is going to do. He knows that the hour has come for him to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders and then to be put to death. It was all ordained before the foundation of the world. But we can look at this. And I think that we can consider some things here. We all know the betrayal of Judas, what it was that he did. Even non-Christians know of this act of betrayal to Jesus. I have never met a Judas Iscariot, somebody named by that name. Just like I've never met a Benedict Arnold. Uh, I've never met anybody named by those names because those are two names that everyone stays away from. And Judas, as we consider him, as I look at him in the pages of Scripture, he really is kind of an enigma to me. I do not understand everything about him. But when we read about him, we can do so in the light of prophecy in the book of Psalms, in the book of Zechariah of the Old Testament that would prophesy concerning his act of betrayal. We know that he is written of in the four Gospels. Matter of fact, besides Peter, he is mentioned more than any other of the 12 apostles. We read about him in the book of Acts, at the beginning of the book of Acts, where his office, his position is going to be replaced. So people, as they consider Judas, sometimes 
I hear those who will say, well, he was predestined uh, to do this. He had no choice. Poor Judas. And we know that, that, that Scripture is going to be fulfilled here. But there are others that will say, well, you know, oh, poor Judas. All he was trying to do is force the hand of Jesus to usher in the kingdom, and it backfired on him. Which, by the way, there's no indication in Scripture that that's what he was trying to do. This man was the betrayer. And he promised to betray him and sought the opportunity to do that. Now, Judas, which actually comes from a very beautiful name, Judah, which means praise. Judas Iscariot, which scholars say, gives us the indication that he was from Judea. He perhaps was probably one of the only one of the 12 disciples or apostles that was from that area of Judea, from the southern part of the nation, which included Jerusalem. All the rest of them, the other 11, is believed that they were from the Galilee. We do know that Peter and Andrew and John's and James, that they were fishermen from the Sea of Galilee, but the others were from the Galilee region as well. I think that as we consider Judas, that his name given praise. Don't think that that Judas here was raised in, a, in, a, in a, an ungodly home. I think, no doubt, he had godly parents. At least he was raised in a religious home. And don't think that Judas was like Rosemary's baby here. There's no evidence that when he was born that he had a 666 tattooed on his head, you know, and had cat eyes. He was raised in a religious home, and he was selected by Jesus to be one of the twelve. He saw the miracles of Jesus. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He is one of those, as they went out two by two, sent out by Jesus, and they came back, and all of them had been working miracles and preaching the gospel and being used of the Lord. And we read that very clearly. It didn't say, well, the 11 were used, but Judas wasn't because he had an attitude, you know, and he uh, is going to betray the Lord. No, he was used at that time. We also know of Judas that he was the treasurer of the group. And so he's holding the money bag. Who do you give the money to? You give it to the one who's most trusted, the one who's most capable. I think he had abilities and talents that the others did not have. But we do get a glimpse of his heart from John chapter 12 and also from Mark's gospel as we see that as Jesus, right before he comes into Jerusalem here for the Passover, that he's in the home of Mary and Martha and, and Lazarus. And all of a sudden, Mary comes up and falls at the feet of Jesus. She has this costly box of, of, of fragrant oil, and she breaks it and anoints his feet. And as she's doing this act of worship, doing it for his burial, all of a sudden, here comes Judas, and he pipes up, and he says, that's a waste. Why did you do that? We could have taken that, that you know, costly fragrant oil and sold it uh, for nearly a year's wage and given it to the poor. We know from Mark's narrative that it tells us when Judas said that, then all of a sudden, the other disciples begin to say, yeah, that's right. They began to, as the Greek says, scorn her. So they join in with Judas. Judas had influence on the other 11. And they're saying, yeah, this is a waste. We could have done that. And then Jesus rebukes all of them. And he says, leave her alone. 
what she has done, she has done for my burial as this act of worship. But it tells us as you go back then to John chapter 12 that Judas was holding the money box and he was stealing from them from the money bag or the money box. And he didn't care about the poor, but he was greedy. When we read about in this chapter about Jesus, what he says of Judas, that you are the betrayer, and we'll see it next week, that one of you is going to betray me. And all of a sudden the other disciples are saying, is it I? Is it I? Could it be me? You see, their response wasn't when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, that they all looked at Judas and said, aha, it's him. Uh, it has to be him because of his attitude. He's over there with the shifty eyes, you know, and he's got the little horns on his head and, and all of this. That wasn't the reaction whatsoever. They were completely clueless of who it was. Even when Judas got up from the dinner, we will see, and he left, and Jesus said, what you must do, do quickly. They're thinking, oh, hurry up and go to the grocery store and get some more groceries and come back. Or Judas, you know, uh, he's so special because he wants to give money to the poor. So they had no clue that Judas was going to be the betrayer. And as we read about Jesus' betrayal, later in the chapter, he would lead the multitude, Judas would, of soldiers and others to the garden. And he said that the one that I greet with a kiss, arrest him. And when Judas did that, Jesus said, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? And they took Jesus away. And Judas would go back to the religious leaders and said, I've betrayed innocent blood. Take your money back. And they said to him, that's your problem. What's that to us? It's blood money. And Judas would throw it down and the priest would scoop it up and they bought the field of blood. And Judas then went out and he hung himself. Jesus would say concerning Judas that he was a devil, John chapter 6. That it would have been better if he had never been born. Those are cold, harsh words from our Lord. He's called the son of perdition. It speaks of spiritual ruin and damnation. It speaks of waste. His life was a waste, and it's sad and it's very sobering when we think about Judas. And instead of Judas being at the cross when Jesus was dying for his sin and asking and crying out for forgiveness, which he would have been forgiven. He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is he goes out and he hangs himself. Listen, there's some things for us to take away this morning. And I want you to know that every single one of you, your life is very valuable. So valuable to the Lord that he went to the cross for you. You are important to him. Because if anybody is here, you're thinking, man, my life has been a waste. Or nobody cares about me. Or I can never be forgiven. Forgiveness is available to you. And the Lord loves you so much that he went to the cross to die for you specifically. And he rose again and he's alive. And he desires to speak into your life and to your heart this morning. You know, when Jesus said in that upper room that one of you is going to betray me, it says that he was troubled. He was troubled by that. And Judas had such potential and opportunity, and he wasted it for whatever reason. And again, I know it was the fulfilling of Scripture. God has foreknowledge. But if you're here and you've never come to Jesus Christ, listen. Don't waste this opportunity. Your life 
is very valuable to him. And he loves you, and he gave his life for you. Sometimes people will say, what makes Christianity true? What makes it unique? You know what makes Christianity true and unique? One thing, is there's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. And no other religious leader died for you. Only Jesus did. No other religious leader rose from the grave. Only Jesus. He proved that he is the Son of God. He validated what he did on the cross. Even as the Bible says, we're all lost because of our sin. But Jesus came to take care of the sin problem. Don't waste the opportunity to come to him if you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is available. It's the greatest need of any man or any woman. And listen, Christian, another application. If you're here and you're in sin or carnality or compromise, don't waste your life in pursuing that or continuing in that. You have the opportunity for abundant life. And closeness with the one who loves you and has provided forgiveness for you. To be blessed of God for that abundant life. And it's not going to be found in compromise in the world and pursuing sin and carnality. Don't waste the opportunity to even this day turn to the Lord and say, forgive me, Lord. You've been dealing with me on this. And I've continued in this sin, in this carnality, in this lifestyle, in this attitude that is wrong. Lord, I come to you. And he desires to bring that forgiveness to you. And if you do not do that, you're going to get hung up. And you're going to get weighed down. And you're going to get burned out. And you're going to be bummed out on life. And you're going to experience the difficult consequences because of sin and carnality. The Lord loves you too much for you to to continue in that way. He's saying, come to me. Call out to me. Repent and turn to me. and Be forgiven. Well, Judas here, we see that it it speaks of him. Uh, He goes to the chief priests and the elders, getting ready to do this act of betrayal. So verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread when the Passover must be killed. Again, that according to Exodus chapter 12, that the the Passover lamb was to be killed on the 14th in the sun. And then the following six days from the 15th to the 21st would be the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And verse 8, and he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat. So Peter and John would have to go and get some unleavened bread. They would have to get some bitter herbs and salty water. And they would have to make sure that the room would be clear uh, of of absent of all leaven. They would have to then go get a lamb, go to the temple. That lamb would be sacrificed. They had to go through all that process of preparing preparing for the Passover. It was a very exciting time for the Jews there in Jerusalem. The city, as we've talked about, would swell to about 2 million people. And as the people poured into Jerusalem during that time, hospitality was very important to the Jews at that time. So you had maybe a half a million people that were living in Jerusalem at this time, maybe a little bit less. But they would invite people into their homes. People were stuffed into their homes. Hospitality was very important. They dare not charge anybody for that. Um, And it was a time of great excitement. It was a time of busyness. It was a time when the markets would be full of people and the shopkeepers, you know, would have extra, uh, you know, 
stocking of, of food and supplies there in the marketplace. It was bustling. It was a time of receiving news from those who were coming from the different parts of the country and even the known world because that's how they got their news. It was a time of, of giving news. This is what's going on in, in Rome. This is what's going on in Proconsular Asia. This is what's going on there in Ethiopia. And, and it was a time of stories. And this Passover was extremely exciting because of the events that had taken place. It was unique in that all of a sudden this itinerant preacher from Nazareth comes riding into Jerusalem and the people are expecting the kingdom of God to be ushered in. And the whole city was moved on that Sunday. And then the next day he goes into the temple and he rebukes the religious leaders. And there he's there at the temple and he's teaching the people and the people are hanging on to every word that he's saying. This was a time of great excitement, expectation. Things were taking place that had never taken place before. So when Jesus says, go prepare to Passover, they said to him in verse 9, where do you want us to, to prepare? How are we going to do this? The city is jam-packed. We're not staying in with anyone. And then verse 10, and he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. And then you shall say to the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And then he will show you a large furnished upper room there make ready. So they went and found it just as he said to them. And they prepared the Passover. When you go into the city, you're going to find a guy who's carrying a pitcher of water. Now, that man would stand out. And because in that culture at that time, it was the women that would carry the pitchers or pots of water. It wasn't because the men were insensitive to the women or lazy or anything like that. That's just the way it was in that culture, and it still is in many parts of the world today. I remember being in South Sudan when I was teaching the chaplains there. In the compound, they had a freshwater well, and day after day, the women would come from the village, and they would get fresh water. They had you know, pots and buckets and everything. By the scores, they were coming in. Not one single man came in and got water. And as I was thinking about that, you know, here's a woman with a pot on her head and carrying a baby in one arm, and I'm kind of making a comment to Wes, you know, the men are coming, and what's the deal? And maybe somebody should help, help them. And Wes is kind of like, leave it alone. That's the way it is in this culture, and, and the women are the ones that come. So here, this guy is going to be distinctive. It's going to be a distinctive sign for you disciples. But I want to take note before we continue on that phrase in verse 13 that they found it just as he said to them. And I'll tell you why it's worth noting. Because see, just as you see that it was true for them on that day, I want you to know that it is true for you and me on this day and every day. In other words, whatever he says, you will find it to be true. And that's why it's so important for you and me to know what he says, because he is truth. His word given to us for our blessing and benefit, to guide us and direct us. His promises are true, and we can trust in him completely and fully what he declares to us, his word given to us. Guarantee that you and I in life will find it just as he said. Well, as we do continue on, when the hour had come, he sat down, verse 14, the 12 apostles with him. And then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So when the hour had come, uh, I, I think that as we look at this, he, he's sitting down with his disciples, with the 12 apostles. And Jesus says, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. It has the idea of I've been longing for this, to eat of this Passover with you. He is speaking of a desire to have deep fellowship with those apostles. I want to have intimate fellowship with you guys as we eat of the Passover, this Passover. And I think that what happens at this Passover, that Jesus, as he would go to Jerusalem for the feasts, we know that he would go to Jerusalem every year for Passover as a child with his parents. We know that from Luke chapter 2, verse 41. And he had gone to Jerusalem for the Passover in his ministry, perhaps celebrating the feast with his disciples the two, three years prior to this. But this Passover, the hour had come. And he says, how I've desired for this Passover to sit down with you. And I think that at this Passover, this last supper before he suffers, is I think the most significant fellowship that he had with the twelve than ever before. And listen, Jesus will always find a place for you of deep fellowship that no traitor or Judas will interrupt. There are all kinds of things in life, the busyness, that take up our time, the cares of this life, the challenges, the difficulties. And even some who have come through the services this morning, that you know what it's like to live with some sense of betrayal. Somebody has betrayed you. And the hurts that come with that. And the heartache and the pain. And as Jesus has this betrayal that is going to happen to him. He knows it's going to happen. Here is Jesus desiring to sit down with his disciples to have fellowship with them. And Jesus knows how to draw us to himself, to a quiet place, where he desires to sit with you and to have deep fellowship with you and intimacy with you and speak to you. So as he does that, he, he took the cup, verse 17, and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine till the kingdom of God has come. And he took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So Jesus now institutes the ordinance that the church calls communion or the Lord's table. It's called the Eucharist from the Greek, which means give thanks. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. The one who came because he loves us so much and he came and died for us. He's now given this commandment to us. Do this in remembrance of me. It's no longer remembering the lamb in Egypt that was slain. It's now the Lamb of God that was broken. The bread representing the broken body of Jesus. The cup represents his blood that was shed for our sins. So why is it that we take communion this morning? Is it just a ritual? Is it just a tradition? We do it every first Sunday and Wednesday of the month. No, it's to remind us believers that our Lord gave his body and blood for the redemption of the world, for your redemption. And we need to remember that. In Judges chapter 2, 
that after the days of Joshua and great victory and, and a book of faith, we see that the children of Israel would enter into a time of just difficulty and carnality. And chapter 2 tells us that that generation after Joshua forgot the Lord and the works of the Lord. Listen, never forget the cross. Never forget the work that Jesus did for you. And that's why we come to the communion table. It reminds us of his ultimate sacrifice and, and his proof of love for us as he went to the cross that we now have forgiveness of sin and a living hope that comes through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second purpose for communion, encouraging us to look back with love and adoration for what he did for us on the cross, but it also looks forward with hope and anticipation of his coming again. Because Paul, when he writes about communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, he says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And here Jesus, he says, that I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus has not celebrated Passover in heaven because he's waiting for you and he's waiting for me. And he's waiting for us when his people are going to be gathered to him and there's going to be this great supper known as the marriage supper of the Lamb that we read about in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. Doesn't that excite you? That we're going to have dinner together? I can't wait for that day when we're all together. And that's our future. So why do we have communion? It's looking back and what he did for us. It's looking back in faith and that we have in him and the work of the cross. It's looking forward in hope of what our future is that we are going to celebrate with him and we're going to have dinner with him someday and all be together. Those three great virtues, faith, hope, and what's the third one? Love. So the third purpose of why we gather together because we gather here is the body of Christ in unity and in love. It's love that surrounds us. You know what I appreciate so much about this, this fellowship of believers is the love that is here and the unity that is here. And the place where we really have unity is when we come to the communion table because this is the Lord's Supper. It's, it's not exclusive for any one group or any one church or any one denomination. It's the body of Christ as a whole. That's where we really find unity. Believers in Christ, our brothers and sisters that we know of that are here in Greeley and in Colorado and in this nation and around the world. The communion table as we come here and remember Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross, and that we've entered into a new covenant, that we're reminded that we are one. And as Jesus is going to tell his disciples a short time from this that we read in John's gospel, that you're to love one another. This is a commandment that I've given to you. And others will know that you're my disciples by what? By your love for one another. And coming together, expressing our love for him and faith in him. Looking in hope, you know, for our future being with him. Now we come together as the body of Christ in unity, and that's what we're going to do as we come as one to the communion table. So as we take communion here, I pray that it isn't just a time where we take a quick snooze before we end, you know, the service. That is a time of worship and appreciation and a time of just going to the Lord as we hold the elements in our hands. So, Father, I just pray that you would do that, touching our hearts as we just continue to draw close, because you're not...
quite done here. You want to have fellowship with us right now as we're just quiet before you, as we give our hearts to you. And the communion elements are handed out. We can remember what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. And Lord, I do pray that if there is anyone here, perhaps in this building or listening on the radio later or uh, listening on live stream, that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, coming to the communion tables for the believer. And if you're here and maybe you've gone to church, you've heard Bible studies, uh, belong to a church of uh, whatever, a church won't save you and a Bible study won't save you. As good as those things can be, salvation comes by you calling out on the name of the Lord in faith. That you would come and recognize your need to be forgiven. That Jesus went to the cross to die for your sins and he rose again and he's alive. And that he says, come to me. And as you do, and as you surrender your heart to him as your personal Lord and Savior, there's forgiveness, the hope of heaven, right relationship with the Father. Don't waste this opportunity. If that means anything to anyone here this morning, will you pray? Because today is the day of salvation. That Jesus, I come to you and I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. And I do believe that you died on the cross for me and you're alive speaking to my heart. You rose again from the grave. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior and sit upon the throne of my life. And I want to know you and want to walk with you. And I thank you for this new beginning. I thank you for your love proven for me. In Jesus' name. And if anybody here prayed that prayer, when we finish communion and, and conclude the services, Pastor John will be up front here to, to come up and tell them the decision you made. Or if you're, you're listening at another time or on live stream, Call the church. We want to encourage you and bless you in any way that we can and follow up with you. But for us, as we take the communion elements, I pray that you would hold on to them. We'll partake of it together as the body of Christ. But just continue in worship and adoration to him. In Jesus' name. Again, reading from verse 15. And he said to them with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. Let's take the cup together. Father, we do come to this communion table in unity as there's one body, the body of Christ. 
And we come to remember what Jesus did for us as we now enter into this new covenant. Covenant based on your son's sacrifice for us. And Christ dwelling in our hearts, no longer writing your law on the tablets of stone, on the flesh of our hearts, Lord, dwelling in us. And Lord, I pray that we would have a desire to have that intimate fellowship with you just as you desire with us. And even through the difficulties and the loss and the pain, through the betrayal of life, Jesus knew what it was like to be betrayed, even to the point where he was killed. And he understands the hurt and the pain. And he desires to draw us to himself, to a quiet place. He can minister his comfort to you because he is the comfort, the comforter, the, the God of all comfort who comforts us in all of our tribulations. Pray that we would leave here encouraged and blessed because we have a Savior who loves us and proved it by going to the cross. Lord, that you would show yourself strong on behalf of your people, bringing wisdom to those who need it and guidance. Strength to those who are weak. That you bring encouragement to those who are sad. That you bring comfort to those who are hurting. Provision for those who have need. You know your people, the hearts of your people. May we go out of here knowing that the very things that you say, we will find it to be true. To trust in you and rest in what you're doing. And know that you're working for good, somehow, some way, even though we, we don't understand it. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless your people as we go our way now, being a light to others, in remembering the cross every day, being thankful for the work of Jesus on that cross and the work of salvation that he accomplished for us. Take us home, rejoicing in you. In Jesus' name, amen.